Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this lovely Monday morning. And we are in Romans, the sixth chapter. When I first came to Emmaus Bible College, Dean Glock assigned me to teach the book of Romans. I was working on a degree and he felt, well, he's taught Romans before and uh, I'll make it easy on him. I'll give him a course he's taught before. I had never taught it before. And uh, Dr. Fish protested. He said, well, I was promised that I would get Romans next. And uh, Mr. Glock said, well, he'll just have it for just for a couple of years and then you can have it. So about seven years later in the faculty meeting, uh, Dr. Fish uh, said, I'd like to teach Romans. I was promised Romans. You promised me Romans. He said, looking right, right at me. And I said, well, I lied. <laughs> and a few years after that, I had heart trouble and I had to give up a course. <laughs> the Lord judged me. But it's a great epistle. And I want you to consider with me uh, these verses, verses eight and following. First of all, we'll kind of introduce the book again. The Paul has written in the first five chapters, uh, the picture of men as sinners saved from the penalty of sin. Sin as guilt and its remedy, the provision, justification by faith through grace, has now been handled. In the present chapter, chapter six, he, re he turns to the consequences, seeing the saints of God as saved from the power of sin through the work of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So from this point on, it's not so much sin as guilt as it is sin as a power in the believer's life that comes before Paul and his readers. So wrath and justification now yield to a discussion of sin and sanctification. Justification is restoration to life, while sanctification is restoration to health. Justification brings us out of the tomb Sanctification delivers us from the old grave clothes, as someone has said. The writer who said that was thinking, of course, of John chapter 11, thinking of Lazarus, who was dead, and Jesus calls him forth, and he's bound from head to foot in the grave clothes. And he says, release him, let him go, and they take off the grave clothes. So justification brings us from the tomb, Sanctification delivers us from the old grave clothes. S. Lewis Johnson, who you may have heard me mention, my revered mentor and professor, said that Romans six through eight is the normative passage on the doctrine of the Christian life. And that's the passage that we're gonna be looking at in these Monday chapels. In the discussion of the Christian life, there are three possible options for professing Christians. In the first place, there are some people who seem to think that a believer, someone who is newly saved, can 
go on living as he has lived before. This uh, position is known as antinomianism. That is antinomian, meaning anti-law. This person has the idea that he can uh, live as he pleases, live a loose life, uh, very, very unconcerned about the moral commandments of the scripture. One of the illustrations that people use of antinomianism is the Russian monk Rasputin, who ministered to the royal family in Russia in the last days of their power. He exemplified this. He believed in sinning greatly, often. He said, the more I sin, the more I get God's grace. Well, Paul the Apostle has condemned that right at the beginning of chapter 6. Are we to say then, are we, do we continue in sin that grace may increase? Rasputin said, yes. Paul the Apostle says, absolutely no. The Bible doesn't support this view of the Christian life at all. A second view is sometimes called perfectionism. And that's the idea that in this life, a person, a Christian, can come to a place where they are uh, perfect or sinless. Some are not quite so adamant. They say, well, there are little, little sins are okay, but we're perfect from the big ones. This is taught by the uh, Wesleyans. I was reading a story about Ray Stedman, who is the uh, pastor of uh, a church in Palo Alto, California. He was a very well-known man, very fine Christian man. And he related an incident in a barber shop. He said he was in Pasadena, California. He went in to get a haircut, sat in the barber's chair and began to talk to the barber and found out that the barber was a Christian. And then the barber told him that 17 years earlier, he had been sanctified and he was no longer able to sin. For the past 17 years, he had committed no sin at all. Well, Ray began to discuss this with the barber and show him passages of scripture. For example, if we say we have no sin, we, we, uh, we deceive ourselves and other texts. And they got into an argument. And the longer it went, the hotter the barber got. Got very angry. All of the time, he's cutting Ray's hair. He worked himself into such a lather that Ray finally said, look, if you can get so upset and angry, when you have no sin at all, what would you be like if you really got carried away? Ray Stedman finished his story with this comment. He said, it was two weeks before I dared to appear in public with that haircut. <laughs> Finally, many teach that what Paul means in this passage in Romans 6 is that the Christian life is a non-continuance in sin, non-continuance specifically under the power of sin. And that's what he seems to teach throughout the scripture. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. For, for sin, verse 14, shall not be master over you. So first of all, in the first 11 verses, we have the facts, the divine reckoning. 
what God has done and what we need to know concerning the Christian life. Now, Dr. Stevenson has already commented on the uh, critics. Paul has been preaching a free grace gospel, and these people have been saying, well, if you're preaching a gospel like that, we can go and live as we please. And Paul says, no, you're not getting the point. That's not true. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he passes that off with a very resounding, may it never be, meganoita. Paul next answers the question by a statement of the believer's death of sin in the death of Christ. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The believer's death to sin is out of harmony with living in sin. It's not our death deadness, by the way, but our death that Paul has in mind here. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, he means more here. Paul is not going to teach perfectionism. He means more than uh, a lapse into sin. Every believer will at one time or another lapse into sin. Rather, he's speaking about the element in which we live, the atmosphere in which we live. We can't live sinful lives. How can we go on sinning as people who have been saved? What Paul is saying then is very important. He means the believer cannot, in light of what has happened to him, go on living in sin. And of course, he goes on now to make this comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ died. He died to sin. That is, he died bearing the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And he uses the metaphor of baptism. Someone asks the question, when Paul speaks of baptism here, is he speaking of spirit baptism or is he speaking of water baptism? Actually, Paul would not understand that question. Paul says in Ephesians, there is one baptism. It is the baptism of the spirit symbolized by immersion in water. And it's a wonderful symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ died. We died with him when he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We were buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. When he rose from the dead, we rose to newness of life. We are united to Christ by this baptism of the Spirit, joined to him. Union with Christ is in back of all of this. And it means that we cannot indulge ourselves in sin. A few years ago, I attended my brother Steve's funeral, and there was a man there at the funeral. I've known him. Uh, we were little boys together. And since his late teens, he has lived a gay lifestyle. When I met him at the funeral, he was in his 60s, still practicing that lifestyle. Now, to be truthful, he is a warm, good-humored, charming man. We went out and had a bite to eat together, and I recalled our childhood in a little evangelical, our little evangelical 
assembly in Nova Scotia. I asked him if he was still a professing Christian. And he said, oh yes, yes, he still was a professing Christian. Paul the Apostle would say, you cannot die to sin, as it were, and continue sinning, continue sinning. So he gives us this significant argument about baptism. We have been baptized, and in our mediator, our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, we hung there with him, we're buried with him, and we have been raised with him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory, through the glory of God the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. Chrysostom, the famous golden mouth preacher from Constantinople said, if then you died in your baptism, stay dead. Good advice. He kind of comes to the key of all this in verses five and six. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be made inoperative so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He talks here about the old man, King James Version, the old self. But what exactly does this mean? Well, John Stott uses the illustration of a man named John Jones. It's an older John Jones, and uh, he says that uh, John Jones' life can be divided in two. Uh, there is John Jones before he was saved, John Jones after he was saved. The old man is not the old sin nature. It's not my lower self. It's my former self. And now... I am a new person in Christ, a new man in Christ. The old man was crucified. By the way, we also know that indwelling sin still, still remains. Paul says the old man is dead, but he also says that we have indwelling sin, indwelling sin. How do we know this is true, this wonderful union with Christ that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God in baptizing us, Jesus actually baptizing us with his spirit, joining us to the body of Christ, symbolized by our immersion in water. So this union with Christ is an objective fact and in these opening verses, Paul wants us to know the facts. Something has happened. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is non-experiential. It's not based on my feelings. How then do I know it's true? Well, it's because God's word said it's true. This is a decision God has made regarding you. He has identified you with his son. Feelings come, feelings go, feelings are deceiving. My warrant 
is the word of God. None else is worth believing. Martin Luther was asked, do you feel your sins have been forgiven? He said, no, but I am sure of it as there is a God, God in heaven. So our biographies are written in two volumes. There's the unsaved me and there is the new me. And this has taken place in order that the body of sin, now the body of sin is the human body, but the human body is the instrument that sin uses. It's the instrument of indwelling sin. And due to our union with Christ, the body of sin has been annulled or rendered ineffective or rendered inoperative. The Net Bible has it very well so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us. And I think that's the key. A true believer cannot be dominated. He's no longer a slave in that way. Again, this does not say that he cannot sin, but the body of sin can no longer, can no longer dominate him. So he says the aim is so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. A life of service to sin is replaced by a life of service to righteousness. There's a cast of characters here, I, we should note in verse six. There's our old self, that is what we were as unregenerate, sons of Adam, our unregenerate state ended when we came to Christ. You are no longer unregenerate. The body of sin, that's the physical body as the seat or instrument of indwelling sin. And then the word we, so that we, would no longer be slaves to sin. We refers to our inmost self. It is that which I, which is I. It is my inmost personality, my soul. That survives all changes. John Jones, the old man, crucified, but he's still in his inner man, John Jones. Someone has said, when you get saved, your mother will still recognize you. Verse 7 is the confirmation of the believer's deliverance from sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And the Greek word there is justified. Justified. Many years ago in Scotland, the word justify meant to execute justice upon a malefactor, to punish with death. When a man was hanged, he was justified. One notice read this way, the murderer taken red-handed was justified without any unnecessary or inconvenient delay of process. Having been crucified with Christ, we paid the death penalty in him for our sin. Isn't that remarkable? The death penalty has been paid in him. We've been delivered from that penalty. The lesson of Christ's resurrection, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. The word if does not suggest a question here. It's assumed true. If it's true that we have died with Christ, 
Paul is speaking here now judicially, remember, this is God's judgment as he looks down at us when we become uh, believers. If it's true that we have died with Christ, by God's determination, we have died with him. It follows, therefore, we have been raised with him and now live with him. The Christian's present life is to be a life with Christ. And by the way, you'll notice in verse 8 that the future tense is used. We shall all, he's earlier suggested a present newness of life. The future tense here implies that the present newness of life is a foretaste of the life with Christ in glory. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Christ's death is not like the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but succumbed sometime later, probably grew to be, uh, have a ripe old age. But Jesus' resurrection is what we would call the final eschatological resurrection. He's the first fruits of that final resurrection. Uh, death no longer is master over him. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What does it mean again that Christ died to sin? Well, it cannot mean that he died to sin in the sense that he's been living a sinful life and he's now stopped living that kind of life. What is actually meant here by dying to sin has to be understood, but about uh, Christ, what Paul says elsewhere. The death he died was for the wages of the sin of others. Uh, John Stott, I think, is right here. The death that Jesus died was the wages of sin, our sin. He paid its penalty. He accepted its reward. He did it once for all. In verse 11, there's a break in the outline, the believer's reckoning. Okay, we know, we know the facts now of our union with Christ. We know that the penalty has been paid. We have died with Christ. We have been buried with him. The old man is dead. And with verse 11, there is a transition. Even so, so in the first 10 verses, we have the facts, what God has done in Christ. Now we are exhorted to count on this. We've told you the truth. Now you need to reckon it to be so. He calls on them to consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. They have come to the end of the old life. The debt has been paid. A new life has been begun. A life of deliverance from the dominion of sin. That's the key, the dominion of sin. We have a new standing, a new life. And we are free from the penalty of guilt. The word reckon here, or consider in my edition, reckon in the King James Version, or count in the NIV, or regard in the uh, Revised English Bible, uh, 
It's kind of a command, an exhortation. You know the facts, now you must believe the facts. Doesn't mean pretending. Rather, it's a deliberate and sober judgment on the basis of the facts of the gospel, the gospel events, what God has done in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Recognize that the truth of the gospel means that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're to count upon this definite break with sin that occurred in their salvation and the new freedom they possess from the guilt and the penalty of sin. One of the uh, Swiss commentators is Frederick Godet. He says, Paul's counsel here differs from naturalistic morality. The, morality. the moralist says, become what you aspire to be. Paul, on the other hand, says to the believer, become what you already are in Christ. In Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful expression. So we need to see Christ's risen life as our true life, to see us living in him. And this in Christ expression, union in Christ, is God's decision. It's not a mystical thing. We are in Christ. God accepts Christ's death as having died for us and his risen life as being lived for us. Paul's exhortation to the Roman Christians is to reckon seriously with the fact that by virtue of God's gracious decision, Christ's death and risen life are counted as ours. It's wonderful. In verses 12 and 13, we have the believers yielding, a call to consecration. At this point, listening to Paul, someone might say, Paul, aren't we human? Don't we live in a, in a world that is full of lust and evil desires? Aren't we sinful after all? Someone else might say, since God has graciously determined our secure status, can't we go on living just not being bothered by all of this? Verse 12, if such questions were being asked the apostle, uh, they came to the wrong conclusions. Verse 12 begins with a therefore, and what Paul follows is the Paul's inference based on the preceding verses. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is the idea running through this passage. Sin does not have dominion. Sin must not reign over our daily lives. It must not reign over our mortal bodies. He mentions our mortal bodies, the bodies that are going to die. He specifically mentions the lusts. Those are the grave clothes. Carried over from our former Adamic lifestyle, they're the habits of sin learned in our unconverted days. There needs to be a change. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. The Christian life, in many ways, is a paradox. The believer has died to sin, but still lives with it. 
He's alive with Christ, yet he still lives, she still lives in his or her mortal body. He or she is fully righteous by God's justification, but still a sinner needing to progress to greater obedience. That's the process of daily sanctification, progressive sanctification. It goes on all through life. We do not arrive at perfection in this life. The truth, says James Boyce, is this. Sin is not dead in Christians, even in the most mature and devout Christians, but rather is something always to be struggled with. Do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why are we told that? Why are we told not to go on presenting the members of our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness if, in fact, we don't have that tendency? We have that tendency. Sin gets a hold on us through the members of our body our eyes, our minds, our feet, our hands, our tongues, our sexual organs. We are in a fight and we rebel against the reign of sin. The verb to present in verse 13, that's used twice, the first occurrence uh, is a present imperative used with a negative. Stop presenting, stop yielding, Evidently, some were yielding. The second instance is an heiress that's used positively. It speaks of a decisive end, a decisive act, an act of dedication. There is a doctrine of dedication in the New Testament. It's here and it's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This kind of presenting is when a soldier is sworn in or when a bride and groom say, I will to each other. It's a, it's a decisive act. Then in verse 14, we have the Lord's promise of deliverance under grace. For sin shall not be the master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This verse, mark it down, it's a promise of deliverance. It's the reason we should yield ourselves to God. He promises deliverance. How so? You are not under the law, but under grace. He's not speaking here of the law generally. He's speaking of the law in its office of condemning sinners. We are no longer under condemnation. We are under grace. So we're free from God's condemnation. We're now the object of God's gracious favor. This confirms the promise that sin will no longer be our master. We are free to resist it at this point. Here's the big idea of this passage from Haddon Robinson. You can't live as you once did because you are no longer the person you once were. You can't live as you once did. You're no longer the person 
you once were. Mr. Curvella, may I have one minute? I close with a story. I haven't heard him yell at me yet. This story is about Augustine. It is told by Ambrose, the highly regarded Bishop of Milan, who greatly influenced Augustine. As the story is told, and Augustine tells this in his confessions, he was a very promiscuous young man before becoming a Christian. He even fathered a child out of wedlock. We know that's true, he acknowledges it in his book. After his conversion, he went through a Roman six kind of experience of yielding his life to God. And on one occasion, he happened to meet one of his former mistresses on the street. He walked by her, he nodded, cordially said hello, but kept going. She sensed a barrier, a reserve in him. Something wasn't the same. She thought to herself, perhaps he didn't recognize me. So she called out, Augustine, it is I. He turned around, I know, he said, but it is not I. That is, not I as I once was. <laughs>